hot minute uh, since I was uh, sharing with you. I was out sick last week. Uh, appreciate uh, Caleb stepping in at the last minute and taking over. I watched on the live stream and he did an excellent job. Enjoyed listening to him as I always do. But uh, uh, coming back this morning, we, we've been studying in Colossians and uh, uh, this, this morning's study is a bit of a, a goat trail, if you will, from Colossians. Uh, but in Colossians, we have been talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and how uh, Paul describes this to us, uh, that he is supreme in all things, and that in spite of this supremacy, there are all these deceptive philosophies that crop up in the world. And the solution, the cure, if you will, to deceptive philosophy in the world is to reestablish this understanding about the supremacy of Christ, that he comes first in everything, and that the problems that we experience in life are the result of our having deviated from the supremacy of Christ, and the, and the solution, the cure, is to get back. And we come in chapter 3, to this passage where he starts talking about practic the practicalities of how, the, how we as uh, the followers of Jesus are going to live. And he says, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives. And that's the point at which the goat trail begins. This is the point at which I find myself getting, in all honesty, a little bit stuck. What does this have to do with the supremacy of Christ? Why is that the first item on this list that he's going to take us through? Well, it's probably a bit complicated. But one of the things I hope that we established when uh, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago is that these foundational relationships like husband and wife, man, woman, boy, girl, uh, even our, our, you know, our, our gender these foundational relationships have a source. Now, that uh, may seem uh, like a, the most obvious statement that I could make to you this morning, but the reality is that we currently live in a world that denies that there is a source, and therefore we can sort of redefine everything as we go. I, I encountered this last week an article about our old uh, public school district, Jefferson County Public Schools back in Colorado, where my kids were briefly enrolled before we started homeschooling them, and where I was on a community uh, committee, advisory committee. Uh, so I have a pretty good familiarity with Jefferson County Public Schools. Uh, they made national news last week because of uh, some information they put out in a guide to their teachers on dealing with gender non-conforming students. Uh, so gender non-conforming, meaning uh, you don't necessarily identify with, the, uh, with, your, with your physical apparatus. Uh, and in that material, they presented this cute little character called the Gender Unicorn. 
and the gender unicorn is meant to illustrate how your sex assigned at birth and your gender identity and your expressions and your attractions can all follow different paths, resulting in uh, a makeup that is specific to you as an individual. Uh, kind of makes you long for the good old days of boys and girls when that was the only classification that we had. Uh, the good old days didn't go anywhere, incidentally. We're still all just boys and girls, ultimately. Uh, but in the culture that we live, in order to make everything equitable for a tiny minority of boys and girls who are struggling with this idea of gender identity, Instead of helping them work through their confusion, what we have opted to do is make sure that everybody is confused. We'll just make this a whole lot more complicated than it really is, and we'll make sure that everybody's confused about it. And so the reality of who we are, the reality of our physical circumstance, the reality of the way that we came into the world becomes... Um, the alternative, our reality becomes the alternative to the rather fantastic philosophies of the age. Now, I, I can present all of this to you this morning, I can present this graphic, and, and you kind of are probably most likely going to roll your eyes. It's like, what? It's, it's silly. And yet, how many of our young people are growing up in a context in which this confusion, this broken, empty philosophy is presented to them as a reality that they should adopt and try to find their way within. There is a sacred cure, and it is a return to a sacred order created by a perfect God and now reigned over by a perfect king. And regarding men and women and husbands and wives and boys and girls, these distinctions matter because they're sacred. These are holy things that the culture around us has decided to meddle with, has decided it can manipulate, but they are holy and sacred things. Further than that, let me just say that all the brokenness that we experience in life is the result of someone living outside the supremacy of Christ. It might be my living outside the supremacy of Christ that creates the problem that I have, or it might be someone that I'm connected to and, and I'm experiencing the negative consequences of their choosing to live outside the supremacy of Christ. But all of the negative consequences, all of the brokenness, all of the evil that we experience in the world is because people living outside of the kingdom, outside of his supremacy, outside of his absolute moral right. Now, we don't like to think that way. We don't like to connect the consequences that we experience in life with the choices that we make. But that is the reality. 
Genesis 1 and 27, the creation story says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So the masculine and the feminine are complementary reflections of God's image. Beyond this, what am I supposed to say? I was out last week, so I had an extra week to think about this, and I'm still struggling with it. Beyond the fact that the masculine and the feminine are complementary reflections of God I God's image, what can we say about what gender actually is? And what can we say specifically about biblical femininity? We try to determine what that means. I, I asked this question of all the women in my household this week. What, are the, what's, what is the fundamental defining principles that make, uh, make up biblical femininity? After a lot of thought, I started to arrive at some answers. But the fact is the question is a lot more difficult than it sh should be, or it seems like it should be. Because what we do is we, we immediately gravitate towards obvious things that we've had experience with and that we know, right? So we, we kind of fall back on roles and assumptions and, and uh, maybe the women in my life and, and how they, uh, how they demonstrated their femininity. We gravitate towards stereotypes and our personal experiences. I kind of think about... Uh, my favorite play, my favorite musical is uh, Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye comes out at the very beginning, and what does he do? He describes how everything works in this little community. And everything works because of the traditions. And so the papas, they do these certain things, and the mamas all do these things, and the sons do these things, and the daughters do these things. And it all works because we have these traditions that hold everything into place. And I, I think we gravitate towards that idea a little bit. Maybe, maybe we're not uh, uh, living in Anatevka, but, uh, but we do kind of gravitate towards those ideas. Maybe uh, depending on what generation, maybe it's more Ozzy and Harriet. Uh, I, I don't know, but we, we, we like those idea of roles. We like the idea that, that everything's kind of neatly defined and that everybody's got a specific job to do. But, of course, that is in the play, in the musical, that's kind of the whole thing. Is Tevia has these three headstrong daughters who grow up and begin to challenge all of these traditions. And I wouldn't know what that's like, having three headstrong daughters in my household challenging traditions. But, but that's so everything starts to fall apart, right? What do we do exactly? How do we understand uh, without roles, without traditions, without these assumptions, without those experiences, how do we understand what is really sacred about gender? And where we might prefer sometimes those hard and fast roles, those neat categories, the reality is that the differences between men and women are a lot more subtle than we often give credit because 
Both are created in the image of God with the intent of reflecting His glory. So at a most foundational level, we are fundamentally the same. Now, there are, in the creation account, gives us two separate accounts, right? So if we read through Genesis 1, that's one account of creation. And then Genesis 2, just sort of, sort of in that after the first couple of verses, sort of starts over again and tells the narrative from a slightly different perspective. And the interesting thing about the story in Genesis 1 is that um, the, entire dis- the entire extent of the distinction between man and woman is that. Is he created them male and female in his image. That's it. That's, that's the only distinction. It's the only distinction that exists in the story. When we read the, the, the retelling in chapter 2 of Genesis, it reveals to us some subtle differences. And these subtle differences, I think, maybe are important because the New Testament writers are going to pick up on these things later. And so... Um, Some of what we're talking about this morning may not make complete sense to you until we begin to unpack those New Testament writings as well, but just bear with me, if you will, because I think understanding the difference, understanding the differences between masculine and feminine in Scripture uh, is going to impact our idea about our our identity, our self-identity. It's certainly going to impact our ideas about marriage. And it's going to have a lot of impact on our ideas about the church. So in that narrative, in that second chapter narrative, in uh, 2 verses 7 and 8, it says, And the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And so what we have here in this second narrative is there's this very clear period of time in which a- Adam is created first. Adam pre-exists Eve. And, and Paul later on is kind of kind of make a big deal about this. He's going to make a big deal about the fact that, that he was that uh, the man was created first. Why is that? Why is it even important? Why is it significant? Is it significant? Why does it matter? Well it's my assumption that the story here is very deliberate and means to convey something. It goes on in uh, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So in the story, that God takes the time to retell in this second chapter. The man is created first, he is placed in the garden, and he is assigned a basic moral order. There's not much to it at this point. It's not like a real well-developed law, but there is a basic moral order that is assigned to him. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that the creation story confers upon masculinity a primary moral responsibility. Now, this fits with a lot of the things that come afterwards. After the fall, 
after they, you remember, they, t- they eat that fruit, and after the fall, God comes to them, and there's this curse. And in Adam's part of the curse, God says, because you listened to your wife. Now, bear in mind, Scripture does not make it a bad thing to listen to your wife. That's, that's actually considered a virtue. But in this instance, it says, because you listen to your wife, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to befall you. Uh, this is Adam's primary moral responsibility. Paul later on is going to come back to us and he's going to say, well, uh, Eve was the one who was deceived. But Adam was responsible for sin entering the world. How is that possible? How does that work? Well, it works because he has this primary moral responsibility. Both Adam and Eve sinned, but Adam had the primary responsibility. Let's just put a pin in that. I know that the culture around us is going to read that as somewhat uh, patriarchal, that, that that Adam having his primary responsibility means that he has some sort of uh, male supremacy of of a kind. Uh, But the reality is, in the text, within himself, before Eve is even created, before the idea of woman even exists, God has assigned to Adam that responsibility. And then his very next thought is this, in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Again, Paul later on is going to emphasize that the woman was created for the man, that the woman was created from the man, and a lot of people really struggle with those words from Paul. What do we do with that? It's going to create a lot of confusion for us. Why does it matter? I think it matters in terms of our trying to understand what sacred femininity really is. And in this story, it's the first clues to a biblical understanding of femininity. God says, I'm going to make a suitable helper. We talked about that a couple of, uh, a few weeks back. Uh, the fact that the culture really doesn't like the fact that, that, that Eve was created to be a helper to Adam, it sounds demeaning. Uh, the reality couldn't be any further from that. There's, real, there's two Hebrew words at work here in this passage. Uh, helper and, and suitable or for him, it gets translated a lot of different ways. But the word helper is azer. We just sang a little a little bit ago. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Uh, that, that's not talking about Scrooge. Uh, that's uh, Ebenezer is Eben is stone and Azer is help. Um, I'm raising my stone of help. It was uh, taken from a story where uh, to, in commemorating God's assistance, we raise this stone of help. Uh, and so Azer carries with it this idea of God's salvation. Like that's what God is bringing to this relationship. 
he is bringing a saving influence. And the other word, um, uh, which we sometimes uh, translate as suitable, is neged, and it really just means in front of or opposite to. And it's almost in the sense of looking in the mirror. So Adam is looking at a reflection of himself that, that he sees himself in Eve, and at the same time, she is opposite him. She is his inverse in just all of the right ways. And so what we have uh, in uh, verse 23, the man says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Why is that? that that's why marriage happens? Why, what, what is the writer saying? Saying uh, that God just created the perfect opposite and perfect answer to a problem that Adam didn't even know he had. And because they're such perfect complementary pieces, they will be drawn together, and particularly in marriage, they will be drawn together, they will be united, and they will become one flesh. And so the first piece, I think, that we can say from this creation narrative about sacred femininity is that she is an emergent help. So if a man has a primary moral responsibility, if that's something that has been conferred upon him by God, the very next thing that we have to recognize about the man is that he is absolutely incapable of fulfilling that responsibility by himself. It's just not possible. This is the one thing in the creation story that God says, nope, this is not up to par. This doesn't work. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so he assigns him this responsibility and then immediately acknowledges that there's no way he fulfills this responsibility alone. The woman then is his complementary opposite, his inverse, God's divine answer to his problem. Neither the man or the woman is inferior to the other, and neither can fulfill God's created intent by themselves. And so they are drawn together, particularly in marriage, because they are the opposite fulfillment of one another and of the image of God. But if they're interdependent, then why is she the helper, and why does he have a primary moral responsibility? I can only understand this in terms of dance, and I'm not a dancer. But man and woman in creation are created as complementary dance partners. Without both, there is no dance. And yet where both are present, one must lead. Not the leadership of control or superiority, but of moral responsibility. And in that moral responsibility, both partners have a mutual purpose and a divine mission. In Genesis 3, verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. 
And, and, and the term Eve actually means life or living. But it's interesting to me that he makes this uh, pronouncement, he comes to this conclusion before Eve has given birth to any children, that, that, that the feminine in the scriptures conveys a life-giving presence. Her physicality is designed to contain within herself the miracle of life. Her body is created with a unique, miraculous capacity to host life and to nurture life. And though it would be a mistake for us to think of femininity as nothing but the experience of having feminine parts, the design of her body and the potential and its potential inevitably is going to shape her experience of living in creation. In her very person, she is a symbol of life and regeneration. And along with that, there is this idea of a radiant beauty. See, everything that makes her suitable for giving life Adam has been pre-programmed to love about her. What we cannot deny is that she is created in a form that fires the imagination of man. He is captivated by it. And she, for her part, has a profound desire to be found beautiful. Now, this is a reality that is fraught with problems because you look at the world around us we have multi-million dollar industries designed to help women feel beautiful when they don't feel beautiful we can get so caught up in the vanity of that we can get caught up in social standards and 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 women who don't look like uh hollywood starlets who don't look like the women on the front pages of the magazines, they begin to feel inadequate because of these ridiculous standards that we've created. And the reality is, she is beautiful. She is beautiful. She was created to be what he wants to see. And it's not that difficult for her to be that. Though we pursue it in all the wrong ways, though we get it wrong, we mess it up. It's a fascinating uh, conundrum to me that a woman who is taken by a man, her beauty is taken by a man and put on display in order to sell products, that woman's being exploited. The same woman takes her own beauty and puts it on a display in order to make a sale and she's empowered. We've messed up the whole idea of beauty in our culture, and that's why the New Testament writers are all going to talk about the importance of cultivating inner beauty over outer beauty because we have all known women who are outwardly beautiful whose spirit is shriveled and broken. And finally, she has an inspiring vulnerability. Peter will call her the weaker vessel. 
a description that a lot of feminists take exception to. She is definitely designed to be strong in ways that men are not. But she's not as strong as men. In the movies, muscle mass doesn't mean anything. Uh, I, like I say, I have thir- three, three daughters. And so I actually, some of those superhero movies uh, about women, Black Widow just came out. We enjoyed that. Uh, uh, my, we, my kids grew up watching Tomb Raider movies. Uh, we love these strong women that show up in these films that can beat up all of these men that are twice their size. It's very exciting. It's very empowering. You go, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. We like, we like to see women functioning that way. It, that's the movies, though, right? In the real world, um, you might be able to overcome strength with exceptional skill. But in the real world, um, women don't flip 300-pound guys through the air. It, it doesn't happen. Uh, when women go uh, to, to join very physical careers, like, uh, like firefighting and, uh, or, or in the military, we lower the physical thresholds, we lower the standards so that it's more um, accessible to them to get in. And these are things that we do in peacetime, right? Because wh- what happens in wartime? Do our enemies go, well, let's make sure and match up the women with the women and the men with the men so that it'll all be fair. She is the weaker vessel. And the history of humanity, the history of humanity reveals to us that women have often been exploited and mistreated because they simply don't have the same physical strength as men. They can be overpowered, and because of that, uh, uh, a lot of abuses have taken place. But not always. Not always. You see, sometimes her vulnerability inspires not his exploitation, but his protection. And so, in Scripture, when a woman is called to be submissive to her husband, first of all, remember, submission is not something that can be forced upon her. Submission is something she has the option to do, and she takes it. So there is a sense in which women are vulnerable in world culture simply because they're smaller in stature and have less muscle mass. But in, in Scripture, there is a sense in which she chooses to take the more vulnerable position, to make herself subject to this man in her life. Not all men, by any means, but a man in her life who she chooses to make that commitment to. And in her submission to him, she inspires his primary moral responsibility. This is... uh, This is not politically correct. This is not even necessarily all that culturally sensitive. But but we need to understand that uh, we're not we're not trying to build something based on the world's standards. 
and we're not trying to build something uh, even based on the standards that we grew up with and whatever church we grew up in. We're trying to go back to the Scripture, simply read what it says, and come to a conclusion about what the supremacy of Christ means in regard to how we live. Now, this may seem a bit of an ethereal discussion this morning, and I apologize for that. I hope it will make more sense as we continue to develop it. And next week, as we look at masculinity in particular, uh, to try to try to kind of put all of these pieces together. But here is this really radical notion, this really crazy idea that, uh, that I want you to walk away from, from this morning with. There is nothing about your life that was not designed and ordained by God. And if you want to restore the goodness, if you want to restore kingdom, if you want to experience a kind of transformation that brings you back to Eden, there's only one source for that information. There's only one source for that truth. And that source today is our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ.